the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. My guest today grew up in the church, graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, spent 16 years engaged in outreach to college students right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and more than a decade ago, pastored and planted a brand new church. Joining us now is the senior and founding pastor of Awakening Church of San Jose. We're pleased to have with us today, Pastor Ryan Engram. Pastor Ryan, great to have you on the program. Uh, great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Great opportunity to talk about what God has been doing, and and maybe to do that kind of take us back. Um, as I mentioned, you you grew up in the church, and I guess yeah. let's just kind of let the cat out of the bag right early on here. We're not going to spend too much time talking about Dad because we're going to talk about your ministry today. Sure, but uh, certainly longtime listeners of KFAX uh, are very familiar with. Chip Ingram, your dad, who I understand not too long ago retired from full-time pastoring at Venture Church and is now in the radio ministry and speaking and book writing full-time, I understand. Yeah, I like to say it is he went down to one full-time job uh, and he's... You know, he was longtime senior pastor of Santa Cruz Bible Church, where I grew up, uh, and many people know and love him here in the Bay there, and then obviously Adventure Christian. Um, but he's always had, living on the edge, his international discipleship ministry that reaches, you know, literally millions of people across the country. And so uh, that's his full-time um, gig right now, and it's wonderful, and he's doing great. Good. Glad to hear it. Was this progression for you then kind of a natural thing, having grown up in the church and and been under the influence of of a forward-thinking pastor like your dad, that at some point you knew inevitably God was going to have a hand on you in leading you into full-time ministry? I think others saw it, obviously, in me before I saw it, typical for many of us. But growing up, and it wasn't that I didn't want to be a pastor, but um, I didn't want to be a pastor. <laughs> I, I was a musician and loved um, just getting to be in that scene. And so I didn't see myself really as a pastor, but had a love for the Bible, love for God's Word, and just took one step, you know, going to study at Moody and then another step and being called into ministry and answering that call and uh, started out in youth ministry, then college ministry. And then here we are, uh, never wanted to plant a church. And now we get part of a little over a decade uh, leading and planning an awakening church. So it was all in kind of gradual steps along the way. And I think the Lord oftentimes leads us that way. If if we knew in the very beginning where his ultimate plan would lead us, we'd probably be so frightened. We'd we'd run out of church or run in the opposite direction like our hair is on fire, I would suspect. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I think he's so gracious and kind. That, you know, we want him to show us the whole picture step four, five, and six. And often he just shows us step one and calls us to obey and follow him. You know, I when I look back at our planning time. I reminded of Abraham when, you know, God said to him, go to the land, I'll show you. 
And I think the challenge for us is we want God to show us and then we'll go. And it's no go. Take the step, what I've been clear on. And as you take that step, I'll show you the next step. And that is how God leads us. And that's what it means to walk by faith. Exactly. And that, that really is that faith component then. That, that, you know, if the Lord spelled everything out in very clear steps, we would know what to do, what to anticipate, how to react, and how to act. And yet it then vacates that component of having to put our trust in him that that literally as we venture out and whatever it is god might call us to do it be it working in the world of of business or trade or ministry reliance upon him to lead each step of the way is not only putting him first and foremost in our lives but i think also giving us an opportunity to really understand what it means to truly be entirely reliant upon him which is really what he wants out of us he 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 wants us to surrender it all, doesn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's how relationships built. Uh, it's not a transaction to get what you need. It's a dynamic relationship with him. And it, it is in that faith and trust process that you learn to trust him and build that intimacy and dependence upon him. Let's talk about the prospect or the challenge of introducing him to others. Uh, we mentioned that, uh, my goodness, uh, Pushing on nearly two decades ago, uh, you and your wife, Jenny, uh, began the outreach ministry of awakening kind of within the confines of Westgate Church as youth and college outreach. And I would imagine in that period of time, you've seen some pretty dramatic changes in terms of we've gone from being largely a society that, that generally accepted God. Maybe we, we grew up in the church, although perhaps have stepped away from it. Now we've got a whole new generation for whom, especially in a region like the Bay Area, where we have so many transplants from other parts of the world, we're beginning to share our faith uh, on kind of the initial foundation that we all agree that God exists, but who is? and does he have a plan for my life? And if so, what does that look like? No, we have to take even a further step back and begin the introduction of the notion of even the concept of the existence of God or even, get this, even more challenging perhaps to some, the concept of truth, that these sure. days there seems to be you know, a fluidity within the notion of truth that historically wasn't there. And, and I'm curious, your, your perspective on that impact of ministry in a place like the South Bay and to collegiate and younger people. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful to have been and still in many ways, our church is still very young, 50%, 18 to 30 years of age. Uh, I feel like that's really the front lines um, today of those that are um, in this cultural shift that is rapidly changing on a daily basis um, there. And so I think we have an incredible opportunity as the church to stop answering the questions that people were asking in the you know 90s or early 2000s and begin to wrestle with the questions that they're asking and start from their starting point help them understand like uh, the concept of truth well okay let, let's talk about that because at the end of the day is truth is just what happens when we hit reality when we come you know face to face with reality and the consequences of that that's that's what happens and so Uh, We begin to have those conversations, and I I actually think even though there is that rise of nuns and duns that everyone's talking about, there 
there's still the spiritual craving and hungering and you see spirituality on the rise and a searching for transcendence, a searching for something beyond myself. Um, the soul is always on this search for wholeness and, and we have, uh, the answer in Jesus. Now we have to learn how to communicate that in a way, uh, for them to hear and receive that. And so, uh, that's the exciting prospect. I think the challenge is over COVID and all the division and challenges that we walk through. I think followers of Jesus have really um, privatized their faith and been shamed into not talking about Jesus in the workplace. Uh, and so how do we help equip those that are in the workplace or on the university campuses to share Jesus in a really winsome way. That that challenge of being engaging and, and maybe running contrary. And, I, and I'm glad you kind of set the, the stage for our conversation today, that, that sense of foundation that though we may have perceptions about where the nuns are today, and I think if, if you look at some of these surveys that are put out by organizations like George Barna and others, would perhaps lead people to conclude that, well, we're, we're kind of moving into a, a day and an age when technology is leading the desire for connectivity and relationship is is on the on the wane after all young people would rather text than phone and and the personal one-on-one engagement that used to be out of necessity because that was the only means we had to communicate has all kind of fallen by the wayside or into the history books but that really that 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 notion defies the fundamental point that you just made and that is that in each and every one of us we are still nevertheless wonderfully made by him in his image having breathed very life into us. And I think that innate desire, we may not be able to articulate it, but that innate desire to want to have fellowship with our creator is still there. We may not know how to look for it. We know, may not know what to call it, but nevertheless, it's still there. And so I wonder if maybe there's a, a fundamental flaw in our approach of thinking that, ah, young people today, they, they don't they don't want to be connected in true relationship. They don't even know how to do that. Talk, talk to that point, if you would. Yeah, and I think it's that thought that is creating such a big divide. Uh, and one of the things I talk to those that, uh, you know, I'm 42, so I don't even fit into the demographic of our church uh, you know, you know, because it's so young. And there's many people that come that are, you know, 50, 60, 70. And then looking at this younger generation, the call for them is to be generational missionaries is to go my role and my purpose is there's a whole generation especially in silicon valley young people well over a hundred thousand between the age of 18 and 25 years of age just in san jose alone uh that desperately need jesus that would be considered an unreached people group by all the data and standards and so if we begin to have this focus and view of like uh, they're an unreached people group what would you do as a missionary you would study their culture their language begin to understand their values and then bring the gospel in a contextualized way that makes sense to them instead what we're doing in the church is they don't care they don't want it they don't and so then there's this divide and young people 20 year olds showing up to a church that doesn't uh, communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to them and they just walk away disillusioned as a as a done and so that is just part of it for us of like, okay, this generation, one of the beautiful parts 
they have a deep desire for authenticity and and it may not be expressed always in the way that everyone goes well that's wonderful but man the church needs authenticity doesn't it they have a deep desire for justice in the world here's what i know we can argue all around justice jesus is all about justice justice for the poor the disenfranchised the marginalized the least of these it's throughout his parables in that a beautiful thing now we're starting to tap into some of their values that they absolutely have that are a hundred percent in line with the gospel now the way it's expressed is aligned all the time absolutely not but now we're we have common ground and then this intrinsic need i think the church has an incredible competitive advantage because um in a digital world in a disconnected we're never more connected but we're more never more disconnected uh, the human craving for transcendence and presence is just being amplified in the soul. And that's the worship experience. That's the gathering of the saints. That's what we're longing for, not just digital content to, um, you know, consume. Young people, they're they're over that. They got that all day long. What they need is a life-changing encounter with God. My special guest today, the founding and senior pastor of Awakening Church of San Jose, Pastor Ryan Ingram, with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. Visiting today with founding and senior pastor of Awakening Church of San Jose, Pastor Ryan Ingram. Pastor Ingram, let's pick up the conversation where we left off just a few moments ago. What I'm struck by in in what I'll describe as your missional approach is, number one, how cyclical it is in that if we look at the early church, it was all about going to other tribes and other tongues and other people groups. And the articulation that the gospel is is for both Jew and, and Gentile, the slave and the free, it is for everyone. And historically, America as a missionary sending nation has understood what it's about to go to another other land where you don't speak the language, don't understand the culture, but learn about them. Figure out how they communicate. Learn what will resonate with them in expressing the gospel message, the methodology of that expression. Of course, the message itself is timeless. And then to present that gospel and reach others for Christ. And I think what you're suggesting is this notion of sort of business as usual. They went to church when they were kids. Of course, they're going to figure it out. No. Instead, to take that missional approach and say, yeah, they, they kids today compared to baby boomer generation – certainly use other means of communication. Some might argue have a whole different language. So what should we do? I think it's exactly what what you've just suggested, and that is to take a missional approach. Well, let's learn their language. Let's figure out their culture and then figure out how to deliver this timeless message. Absolutely. And that's one of the challenges that we talk about is we need a first century uh, Judeo-Christian mindset in a 21st century world, and we've imported rather a 20th century Judeo-Christian, and we have to get back to the early church because uh, we can bemoan, okay, there used to be a, a broad sense of maybe cultural values and belief in God, or we can go, no, we're the light of the world. Jesus placed us here for this particular time on the planet, and he wants to use us to his love and grace 
And that's exactly what the first church, the early followers were in an incredibly hostile environment. And that's where the church thrives, by the way. Whether we like it or not, the church thrives in hostile environments and the gospel spreads like wildfire. You know, it strikes me that oftentimes we hear a lot today about rights and our rights are being violated and we as Christians need to stand up and uh, you know some people can quote chapter and verse out of the constitution faster than they can out of the word and yet you make a very profound statement and observation and that is that historically you're right the church tends to flourish the most when it's in that pressure cooker whether we talk about the first century church of rome that had to hide in the catacombs underground to survive to what's happening in places like north korea communist china all across the continent of africa where people who are longing for authenticity and community, and truth, and the power of a changed life are so eager. And, and again, as we touched on a moment ago, um, Pastor Ingram, the, the notion that, that that fundamental longing and hunger has not changed. How we deliver the message, perhaps. The way in which we communicate, perhaps. But learning that fundamentally people want that sense of belonging and community and want to have that feeling as if there is something in my life that I can count on when all else fails me. And that that is a message that I think has certainly resonated down through the the millennia, uh, going straight back to the way Christ himself expressed the message when he was amongst us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit about what you've seen God doing and the the impact of the ministry of Awakening Church, for example. We we mentioned that it began fundamentally as uh, youth and collegiate outreach, and then God, as we said earlier, had other plans, and along the way, eventually um, led you and your wife and a, and a handful of folks to, to do a new church plant in San Jose. Is it challenging? Do you see differences today than where you were even, say, 10 years ago because of some of the stuff we've touched on, like technology and in particular, the fact that we're seeing this changing demographic. For example, I just read the other day that now in the San Francisco Bay region, uh, the Asian community is one of the largest population groups that we have, different from even 15 years ago when we might have said Latinos or Hispanics, and 15 years before that, we might have said Europeans. How is that changing demographic um, opening up doors of opportunity for ministry, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, the landscape's constantly changing, and I think in the technological age, it's changing more rapidly than ever. So it used to be, you know, every 100 years, and then every 50 years, and then every 20 years, and now it's... uh, it's, it feels like every year there's a the landscape is changing, um, and I think one of the exciting parts again about Silicon Valley is what happens here affects the whole world. So, as pastors and as followers of Jesus, realizing that our influence and impact then spreads to these high tech companies that are um, you know in everyone's pocket and apps that uh, everyone's using and so we, we have the ability of reach and impact like I think no other place on the planet and I think the church our vision and calling is to awaken this generation to new life in Jesus so it's it's really 
that the tip of the spear is 18 to 25 year olds. Uh, we, we say it this way, that we're a four generation church that's for this generation. Um, so when we planted Awakening Church, that generation were, were millennials. Uh, you know, I'm just just made the Gen X marker, but we're we're reaching millennials. Now the millennials are the leaders and, you know, they have families and now we're reaching Gen Z. And, you know, and then there's uh, Gen Alpha that's coming up behind them rather quickly. And so when I think of some of the changes and diversity is like it has to do with generational diversity of what what were the areas and things that language that we needed to learn with the millennials. And then now with Gen Z, how do we connect to this younger generation that is called one of the most anxious generations that we've ever had? And so how do we then begin to meet them where they're at? Um, I love, I think I, I love the diversity in the Bay area. I just think it is so amazing. Awakening's an incredibly diverse church. And I think, I believe that's the future of the church that we need to, um, represent and resemble heaven, every tribe, every tongue, every language, um, a lot better here on earth it, for historically, I think in, uh, brokenly and sadly, the church has been one of the most, um, segregated hours as I forget who said it. That was, that was uh, Martin Luther King, 11 a.m. Sunday morning in America yeah. is at the most segregated it ever is. For- yeah. And, 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 and that is a, a clarion call for us as leaders to, who are in the church to own it, to repent of it, and then to um, elevate and voices of diversity and invite that them to the table. And so I think that's incredibly important. And I love, I love the diversity of the Bay area. And as you say, you know, you open up your front door and it looks more like heaven than I think most of us realize. I, I, I'm curious from your perspective, obviously the issue of engagement is one of the challenges the church is having, not only in terms of understanding what that looks like, um, you know, cross-culturally, cross-generationally, cross-technology, but then the notion, and we've seen some of this, and I, I'm just going to speak it. It may be uncomfortable for some people to hear, but uh, I, you know, the, the 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 truth is, it has to ultimately be be put forward. That sometimes we in the church have taken the position that we have the truth, we have the word, and so we just need to go out there and bang it into people's heads to convince them that we're right, and they'll eventually see things our way. I'm wondering what what what's wrong with that oftentimes hostile approach. And I'm going to choose my words wisely here because I know we need to go and share the gospel, share truth in boldness, and we are called to be both light and salt. But I think, and I wonder from your perspective, if if sometimes maybe we do so such a good job at the salt part that maybe we tend to even sometimes pour a bit of that same salt in wounds as opposed yeah. to looking for a healing approach that can bring about genuine engagement that can watch this build the trust necessary for people to be able to then essentially give us permission for us to speak absolutely i I mean i I, the old adage i think it started with young life back in the day the founder of young life Uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care uh and, and we 
often lose sight of that. And I think if we just study back to the first century and study the life of Jesus, it would be an interesting thing uh, for those who are listening. Would Just go through the Gospels and see how many questions Jesus asked. And how many times he responds to a question with a question. Um, it's a rabbinic um, tool, a teaching tool that they used. And yet it's lost in our day is we don't even begin with questions. We begin with answers. Jesus, Jesus often began with questions and even to questions asked to him, he responded with questions. And then he, and then he told stories. He told lots and lots of stories that helped begin to form and shape and understand an understanding of what this kingdom of heaven was like. Um, and when you look at how he interacted, those who were very far from Jesus, he always led with compassion first and then followed with clarity. Uh, I can take John 8, the woman caught in adultery, compassion first. And then after everyone left, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more uh, at the pool of Bethesda, where the person, uh, the man was lame for 38 years, heals him, meets with him, and then follows up later and says, now, you know, stop sinning or something worse will happen. Like he does follow with clarity. I think that's the problem. Some people are like, we're going to lose the clarity. No, Jesus led with compassion. And often what happens is, as the church, we lead with clarity and never get around to compassion. Yeah, or, or condemnation, which yeah. I think is oftentimes just a, yeah. a sign of a sense of self-righteousness. And, and, and Christ had words to say about that sense of self-righteousness, too, didn't he? Well, that's the interesting part, is that formula flipped when he was, only was talking to religious leaders. Mm. Nicodemus. Yeah. Uh, when he was talking, so he always led with clarity. Those who had the light, those who were supposed to have the truth, well, he gave them the light back of this is what, you're, you're supposed to know this. And when they responded to that, then he followed with clarity. And so our approach differs for those who are followers of Jesus to those who are far from Jesus. My special guest today, the founding and senior pastor of Awakening Church of San Jose, Pastor Ryan Ingram, with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. Visiting today with founding and senior pastor of Awakening Church of San Jose, Pastor Ryan Ingram. Pastor Ingram, let's come back to what we were talking about. You mentioned something a moment ago that I'd like to have you elaborate on, um, Pastor Ingram, and that is you talked about storytelling. And, and certainly, you know, as we're going to introduce Christ to somebody else, sharing our own story, vitally important. And and, and I think it, it presupposes the, the notion that, well, for example, if, if I came to you and said, tell me about your wife, Jenny. Wow, you could tell me about what her interests are, her hobbies are, where she went to school, what her favorite color is, what her flavor, favorite flower is, all of it. And then as you would share that, I'd say, wow, I'm getting to know a little bit of this person vicariously through the story that you're telling. And maybe my, my interest is piqued to find out more. I would suggest maybe the same approach when it comes to sharing Christ with others might be equally as effective, but perhaps for lacking one thing, and that is you can't talk about a person if you don't know them. If if you and Jenny met, got married, and then lived in two separate states, <laughs> never talked, you probably couldn't tell me much about her. 
I'm wondering if maybe one of the challenges in front of the church today is that if we're going to be effective communication of the gospel and sharing our story, we have to know whom it is in whom we have believed. And I fear that perhaps part of the the ineffectiveness, so to speak, uh, of the church and oftentimes is the fact that we don't really know him. We know of him. We go to church. It's what we do. Not necessarily indicative of who we are or the fashion and depth in which we really know him. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things, speaking of Jenny, uh, over the last several years, as we just looked at the way Christians were responding, not not what's happening in the world, but just the way Christians were responding to things, especially online. And she had this great line. She's like, I feel like Jesus just got lost from the conversation. I don't see him. And it was so convicting. And as we just said, 2023, just for us as a church, we're going to get to know Jesus afresh. And and at times you just feel almost silly as a pastor saying that because isn't that what we're always doing and should be doing? But it doesn't, it's not representative when I look at the church and Christians that we really know Jesus We've fallen freshly in love with him. We know what's on his heart, and we're beginning to do the kinds of things he would do if he were in our place. And so for us, just this entire year, we're preaching solely out of the Gospels. And our groups are going through, you know, selected readings through the Gospels and teachings. And just like that's the whole goal is like if you really get to know Jesus, man, he changes your life. He brings hope, purpose, and meaning. And all I know is he changed my life, and I, I can't stop talking about him. And so that's that's where people, I absolutely agree, is um, the beginning place. We, we can look out there, but it, the beginning place is right inside our heart and right with our relationship with Jesus. And, you know, I think it's a valid question for all of us to ask, to kind of check ourselves. Uh, we're so eager sometimes to, to slap back, to clap back, to uh, engage on social media. We find a statement that we don't like or learn about a news story, and we immediately want to, you know, stand up for the truth and let our position be known. And maybe as we engage in those dialogues, it would be extremely healthy to every now and then stop and ask ourselves, where is Jesus in this conversation? Is he a part of this conversation at all? Or have we just run off by the wayside and and, and left him uh, somewhere else? And I'm reminded of the, the passage of scripture in which, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we, you know, raise the dead and heal people yeah. in your name? Look at all the wonderful things we've done for you in your name. And here Christ comes back and says, get thee behind me, Satan. I knew you not. Wow. I never knew you. Mm-hmm. And that, that word, there's two different words in Greek, probably more, but for knowing. And that's, that's, that's the word of relational knowing. Let's talk a bit about what God is doing at Awakening Church. Um, 
active stuff going on. I, you guys have, you know, not only that 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 local heartbeat, which I love, but also a global heartbeat. You're actively involved in uh, outreach in Haiti, and of course, right there in the greater South Bay community, a homeless outreach, food pantry. Boy, there's a lot going on. Just kind of give us a, yeah. a bit of a thumbnail sketch, if you would, Pastor Ingram, as to what God is doing at Awakening. Yeah, a lot. A lot of exciting things. Uh, It began with, we do meet on a high school campus. We've been there now just about 11 years. Um, And we said it's more than a place to meet, but a people to love. And so where we meet is our our first mission field uh, and ministry. And so we adopted that high school. Uh, and at first it was met with suspicion because if you're going to love somebody there, what do you want? And we said, there's no strings attached. And so we love and serve the faculty there, the students, um, every, every single, we're just going to do it this next week at the end of every semester, we throw, um, bring in a taco truck and end of the year, uh, end of the semester party for the teachers. Um, uh, we did uh, paid for college application fees for students who couldn't afford to go to college, you know, wow. pay for those colleges. $18,000 this last year uh, got students who wouldn't have afforded to be able to even do the fee to be able to apply and get into college. Um, we do a food pantry every other week on Del Mar High's campus. Um, and so, I mean, I could go on and on. There's lots going on there. The most exciting part is the relationship we've developed where uh, their administration say Awakening Church is family. And, and like if there's a need and I get an email from the principal or from another teacher of a family need, we, we help individual families con- consistently. Most of our benevolence money goes towards those families at the school. And so that's exciting for us. And just one way I, I think I would if more churches could just adopt one school, the impact we would have. And just the, go for the long run. And it's not about getting more people into your church. It's just about loving the community the way we think Jesus would love them. And then leaving the results up to him. And I love it because it's all about the church being the church, that relational engagement and taking the non-transactional approach. I mean, these days it seems as if everything that we do is, well, if I give you this, what do I get? And vice versa. Instead, if you look at at God's example, he said, guess what? It's free for all. We've done all the work. What can you do to be saved? Absolutely nothing can you do to be saved because it's all provided you in Christ Jesus. And I think that that really ought to be the the guide, not only for the way we understand our relationship with him, but also the way we understand our relationship with others. That it's not about giving to get. It's about giving simply out of love and compassion and impacting the community where God has called us to right there. I, I want to remind listeners that, again, service times for Awakening Church, Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. and again at 11.15 a.m. and all kinds of stuff going on, as you heard Pastor Ryan Ingram mention a moment ago. More details, too, available on the web at awakeningchurch.com. That's awakeningchurch.com. Finally, Pastor Ryan, for someone eavesdropping on our conversation today, maybe take a moment and just extend a personal invitation for them to come out and join church on a Sunday morning and see what God is doing. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're searching or looking for a church home or just have questions about Jesus and spirituality, uh, we would love to have you join us. Uh, it's a very casual 
environment uh, filled with lots of young people, but of every age and generation as well, lots of families. And um, uh, it's a moment where we uh, are trying to have this great production, but we want to help you encounter the presence of Jesus. And so we have great music, we have great teaching, we have all those sort of things, but our heart is more than anything for you experience community and the presence of Jesus. Again, that's Awakening Church online at awakeningchurch.com, awakeningchurch.com. Our thanks to Pastor Ryan Ingram, lead pastor, for joining us today. What a delight to visit with you. Hope we get a chance to do this again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. National Defense Authorization Act. The bill gives the president the authority to indefinitely imprison American citizens without a court hearing, both domestically and abroad, bringing the battlefield to the homeland, all in the name of anti-terrorism. Is it ultimately perhaps anti-constitutional? Not just unconstitutional, but anti-constitutional? With some insights on this story and what appears to be a significant degree to which our rights as Americans are eroding, we're joined now by Fox. News Senior Judicial Analyst, Judge Andrew Napolitano. He has a new book out entitled, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? The Case for Personal Freedom. And Judge Napolitano, is always great to have you on the program. Oh, nice to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me. Your reaction to this story, you know, we've been hearing so much about uh, concerns over trying to deal with the apparent attacks on American soil by Al-Qaeda, as if somehow that the combined forces of the FBI, the ATF, the Judicial Department, and on and on the list goes, are not significant enough to deal with terrorism. Now we're working toward passing bills that literally, as I say in the opinion of some, would bring the battlefield to U.S. soil. And that's the ability to arrest people without charge and incarcerate them without end and keep them from a lawyer and loved ones and visitors and, most importantly, from a judge and a jury. Who could possibly feel safer that way? But that's what was concocted by the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee at secret closed-door hearings while we were eating turkey and watching football Thanksgiving week. They suddenly uh, sprung this on us on the Monday after Thanksgiving and with a minimal debate on the floor of the Senate that would allow the president to declare that the United States of America is a battlefield. and That includes all 50 states and all uh, territories and commonwealths and permit him to use the military for domestic law enforcement. Now, the federal government has not used the military for domestic law enforcement in this country since 1876, when uh, it was using it for domestic law enforcement in the South in Reconstruction. And one of the provisions that ended the troops in the South, 1876, is uh, 11 years after the Civil War was over, was legislation prohibiting uh, the military for this purpose at any time in the future. They're not going to use the military to direct traffic. They're going to use the military to pick up people that the president wants picked up. Just as he had Anwar al-Awlaki killed by a drone, the president thinks he can arrest people without charges, without evidence, and lock them up and throw away the key. Now, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution directly prohibits this and says no one shall suffer loss of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Due process of law means charges, a trial, a fair trial, a judge, a jury, a lawyer, and the right to appeal. The president 
and members of Congress, this is both parties, this is actually instigated by John McCain, a nominal Republican, believe that they have the authority to do this. It's reprehensible. It won't keep us safer. It'll bring us one step closer to a totalitarian government. It's the type of thing I write about in my book. It is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. But all of this, Judge, part of this bigger picture of the erosion of our constitutional rights, where so much of this, as I suggested in my opening remarks, is not just simply unconstitutional, but but seems to be working against the Constitution, against it and, and, and against every form and fashion of what it is that we have held dear in this country and has made this country different from any other nation on earth. That is the notion that the government does not grant rights, but rather the government is a position to protect our God-given rights. Now all of a sudden that's changing. Well, the government acts as if our rights come from it, not from our humanity, because the government continuously behaves as if, as if it can just turn off our rights. It certainly did with Mr. Allah Lockie, who notwithstanding uh, his his un-American or, or, or non-American, I should say, sounding name, was born in New Mexico. The president decided on the basis of secret evidence that only he and the people to whose confidence he, he in whose confidence he reposed his trust saw that this person was so dangerous he, and the evidence of his behavior was so overwhelming that a trial wasn't needed. When Abraham Lincoln made that argument during the Civil War, while Southern troops were shooting at Northern uh, soldiers and, and, and invading Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court said you can't do that. The Constitution exists for everybody in good times and in bad. The government just can't declare a person outside the protection of the Constitution. If that were the case, then the Constitution means nothing. And you, Mr. President, took an oath to uphold it. So that's what we're going through right now, Craig. Uh, I, I don't know what President Obama will do with this, and I don't know who will uh, succeed him, whether the, his successor comes about in January of 2013 or, or four years thereafter. It doesn't matter. The framers didn't trust this kind of power in the hands of any individual, and that's why they gave us these guarantees, these protections. If the Congress thinks that it, it can violate its oath to uphold the Constitution by writing away these guarantees, then we have no freedom then our freedoms are subject to the whims and the fears of Congress. Well, and we live in a day and an age, judges, you know, that we've seen even the president insist that if Congress can't get, quote-unquote, the job done, that he will do it for them, as if to suggest that somehow now the executive branch is going to be able to somehow inherit or take on what uniquely had been held as a right of the legislative branch to well, pass he laws. Started, he started a war on his own. Uh, he bombed and killed in Libya while uh, he was in Brazil, and the Congress was on spring break. Did you know the Congress gets a spring break? Well, it does. I thought only college students did. Nevertheless, Congress did nothing to stop them from uh, from doing that. Congress did nothing when he when he killed this uh, American citizen and the guy's 16-year-old son, about whom he admitted he had zero evidence of uh, of criminal uh, behavior or or immediate uh, or immediate danger. Congress did nothing about it. So Congress, which sometimes acts like a potted plant, when the president does things that Congress perceives as politically popular, although unconstitutional, or as my friend Craig Roberts says, anti-constitutional, the Congress is just as much to blame for letting the president get away with this as the president is for doing it. You know, there's an important wake-up call here, and, and I want to encourage people, Judge, to get a copy of your new book, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? This notion that, you know, we, we need to decide what do we value more? Do we value safety or freedom? I tell you, I, I remember walking down the streets of Moscow 
prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I have to tell you, even at 10, 11 o'clock at night in very dark streets, you felt eminently safe. You knew somebody with an iron fist was in charge. And the crime rate in Moscow in the middle of the night was practically nothing under Soviet communism. But you also knew that as safe as you were, you had no freedoms whatsoever. Do we really want to live in that kind of environment where we feel safe but have no freedoms to, no, to exercise no, no, in that no, safety? Of course. Of course not. Of course we don't. But that's what this government, Republicans and Democrats, is bringing us to. Look, George W. Bush and Barack Obama have frequently argued that their first job is to keep us, keep us safe. They're wrong. Read the Constitution. It tells you what the president's job is. The president's job is to keep us free. If they keep us safe but unfree, they're not doing their job. Period. That's what this book argues. Here's a $64,000 question, Judge. If if Congress is not doing its job, if the president is not doing this job, and we have concerns even about the judicial branch doing theirs, what do we do as American citizens? We have to vote them uh, out of office. Or we have to uh, disobey unjust laws. The courageous people who, who desegregated, segregated lunch counters in the South in the 50s and the 60s broke the law. But those were unjust laws that the legislatures lacked the political will to change and the courts lacked the intellectual fortitude to change. But, but civil disobedience changed them. Here's an example of present-day civil disobedience. The Patriot Act lets federal agents write their own search warrants, something else we could talk about. Blatantly unconstitutional because the Fourth Amendment says only judges can issue search warrants. When they hand you the search warrant, they tell you you can't tell anybody about it or will arrest you for telling anybody. Guess what? A lot of people who've received these self-written search warrants have been telling people. They're lawyers who have been going into court to challenge them. Guess what federal judges have been doing? Invalidating them. So sometimes it's necessary to be courageous in the face of an unjust law and do the right thing, and freedom will prevail. The other thing to do is to vote out of office anybody who, who enacts legislation that blatantly, directly, and clearly and profoundly violates the Constitution. Judge Andrew Napolitano, again the new book, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? The Case for Personal Freedom. The book newly published by Tom Snelson and available through Judge Napolitano's website at Judge Knapp. That's JudgeNAP.com. As always, Your Honor, appreciate having you on the program. Pleasure, Craig. Thanks for having me. Take care now, Judge. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.